Well, hi, everyone. Um, my name's Frank, and I'm one of the elders here at the um, Wallingford Expression of the Hallows. Um, and it's so great to worship with you, um, our risen King Jesus, today. And I've got the privilege uh, of taking us through our passage today. Um, if you've not been around with us over the last few months, we're going through Luke's Gospel. Uh, and the passage for today is Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. And that's from the, uh, the Christian Standard Bible. So it's going to come up on the screen. Why don't you follow along with me as I read it out? When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he told him, that's Jesus, a man was giving a large banquet and inviting many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a field and I must go and see it. I ask that you excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married and therefore I'm unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then, in anger, the master of the house told his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. Master of the servant said, what you ordered has already been done and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who are invited will enjoy my banquet. Let me just say a quick prayer before we uh, dive into this passage. God, thank you for this glorious day. Uh, thank you for all that we get to remember and celebrate today. Um, we thank you that um, you arrested death, Lord, that you, um, you vanquished over death. And, and, and in that, uh, you offer up eternal life for us as well. So we praise you for that wonderful truth. And I thank you for this incredible passage, Lord. Uh, thank you that it's so relevant to Easter, um, even though it, it was just kind of how it fell uh, in the series. So I just pray that you'd help me as I unpack this, Lord. Um, may I speak your words. And I really pray that you give us ears to hear you today um, in your great name. Amen. Now, when was the last time that someone invited you to a big party? A party that you wouldn't even have dreamed of missing. Last year... My wife, Debs, and I were invited to a wedding uh, of one of my oldest family friends. And they live in Scotland, which, if you don't know, is the kind of top part of the UK where it kind of bulges out. And it's beautiful, absolutely stunning. And this wedding is, was in a particularly, beautiful part of, a particularly beautiful part of the UK. The air is so fresh there. The water is so pure there that their little cottage that they own they just pipe the water off the hill, straight into the house for drinking water. It's set in these beautiful green hills with a little brook or a creek, as you would call it, running down through the middle. And the party was held in a massive white tent that was overlooking the hills. The food was incredible. And there were loads of bottles of champagne that they couldn't think about how to refrigerate. So they just put it in the local creek and then they just pulled them out one by one 
when it was ready to pop the cork. It was an, an incredible party. And add to that um, the fact that this family are all gifted, gifted musicians. It really was a night to savor. Now, the journey from Seattle to this tiny village in Scotland takes about 24 hours, and it isn't cheap. But there was absolutely no way that Debs and I were going to miss this wedding party. To be invited to a party like this by people that we love is a huge privilege. And we did not see it as a chore to attend, but as a great honor. And we cleared our schedules so that we could attend. Friends, the gospel good news this Easter Sunday is that God has invited you to, an, to a banquet at his house. Jesus made this invitation possible when he gave up his life for us on the cross to remove the sin which was acting as a barrier, preventing us from dwelling in God's presence. We spent time on Good Friday night reflecting on that together. And then today, three days later, we celebrate that Jesus rose from the grave, defeating death and opening the door to eternal life, where we have been invited to share a great banquet in the presence of God and his people. With the Easter gospel truth ringing our ears, let's dive into our passage today and see what God wants to teach us through this parable. But before we dive in, let's remind ourselves where we are in Luke's gospel. If you've got a Bible, if you look at the first verse of chapter 14, you'll see that it's the Sabbath day, and Jesus is actually at a dinner party at the house of one of the leading Pharisees. And over the course of that dinner party, we see Jesus heal a man who had an abnormal swelling of his body, and then he rebukes the Pharisees for how they've turned the Sabbath into yet another burden for the people to bear, rather than the deep rest that God intended it to be. Jesus then turns his attention to the guests, and he tells them a parable which urges them to grow in, in humility. And finally, Jesus turns to the host, and he points out that he's only invited the rich and powerful to the banquet or to his dinner party. According to Jesus, the godly way is to invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, who are unable to repay him in order that there is an eternal, sorry, in hope, sorry, that there is an eternal reward waiting in heaven for those who show such generosity. And then we come to verse 15 of chapter 14, which says this. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now this statement seems to be in response to what Jesus has just said in verse 14, that the one who is generous towards those who are unable to repay them will be rewarded at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, while there's different theories here about why this person makes this statement, Jesus clearly sees it as a chance to teach about what the kingdom of God looks like and who it is that will find themselves blessed in it. So Jesus launches into a parable about a man who throws a huge banquet and invites many. Then, at the time of the banquet, he sends out a servant who says, come, because everything is now ready. 
Now, this, this double invite was the custom of the day. If you threw a, a big party like this, you throw out the first invite and say, I'm going to have this big party. And then when it was ready, you send out a second invite. Now, when Jesus' parable, when, this, when the time came for the banquet and they received that second invitation, we read in verses 17 to 18 that without exception, they all began to make excuses. Now, this surprising turn of events in Jesus' story would probably have been jarring for the people he was sharing dinner with. As is often the way, Jesus knows how to get people's attention. What reasons could these people possibly give to turn down an invitation to this banquet? Well, let's read the excuses that the people give in verses 18 to 20 for a second time. The first one said to him, I bought a field and I must go and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married and therefore I, I'm, I'm unable to come. Now I can imagine the people in the room with Jesus reacting to these excuses. Pfft, come on, what? Really? Is that the best you can come up with? Those are pretty weak excuses. But see, Jesus crafted his parable so that the three excuses are laughably bad. And he does this for a reason. See, the first person's excuse is that he's just bought a field and he must go out and see it. Now, buying a field is like the modern-day Seattle equivalent of buying a house on Lake Washington. And if you had the money to do that, I'm pretty sure that you would get a home inspector to inspect the house first, to make sure that it was a good investment and that you weren't going to find all sorts of horrible surprises when you bought the house. But that's not what the guy with the field does. This guy buys an entire field, sight unseen, and then he, then he thinks it's a good idea to then to go and look at it. It's entirely the wrong way around. It's similar with the second man with his five yoke of oxen. Oxen were extremely uh, valuable at that time uh, because of all the things that they could do you know, on the land. And five yoke of oxen actually means 10 oxen with a yoke being you know, two yoked together. So he spent a lot of money on these oxen and the modern day equivalent would be a tractor. It would have been game changing for this guy's business. But just like the first guy, he makes a payment and then he goes to check that they're healthy and strong. And the other thing you can say about the first two excuses is why couldn't they just wait? Why couldn't the field have waited? Why couldn't the oxen have waited? Then you come to the third excuse. The third man offers up his recent marriage as the reason he can't make it. Now, if the wedding day itself had clashed with the banquet, then that would have been a pretty bulletproof excuse. But the couple were already married. So why didn't this man ask for a plus one for his wife? Surely the host would have wanted his guests to feel able to bring along their wives to the party, right? So what is the deeper teaching point that Jesus is making here with the three men and their excuses? 
Is it possible that Jesus makes the men's excuses in this story deliberately ridiculous for a reason? Think about it. If you throw a party and invite people, you can tell when people could come but are making excuses to get out of attending. And when that happens, it can be quite hurtful because we know deep down that if they really wanted to be at the party, they would move things around in order to be there. Essentially, excuses are a polite way of saying, I don't really want to come. I'll give you an example of this. If you offered me tickets to a baseball game, I would be like, oh, I'm really sorry. You know, I'm supposed to be having dinner with a friend. I can't make it. Um, I hope the game's great. I do love baseball, but um, I really hope you have a good time. But then if the same person was like, oh, sorry, it's actually not a baseball game. Uh, it's actually a rugby game. I'd be like, oh, yeah, rugby game. Oh, sorry. I thought you said baseball. Um, Sure, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I can call my friend. I'm sure they can reschedule. I mean, if we're going to a rugby game, definitely go to a rugby game. Let's consider this in Jesus' parable. The three men could all have made it to the banquet if only they wanted to. The point is that these men would rather be doing anything but attend the host party. Now, doesn't this strike you as odd? The host had purchased the finest food, well-aged wine. The only thing the guests had to do was simply rock up, sit down, and start eating and drinking. It's very likely that this party would have lasted for days as the guests ate, drank, danced, and laughed until late into the night for multiple days in a row. So why is it that they choose not to go? Well, these men either didn't realize just how good this banquet was going to be, or more likely, they were simply too wrapped up in other things. See, the first man was wrapped up in his real estate portfolio. His wealth and his land were of first importance to him. The second man was too wrapped up in his work. He just made a a crucial purchase that would expand his farming business. And the third was too wrapped up in relationships. He was newly married, so he wasn't concerned with spending time with anyone else. Remember, Jesus' parables are so brilliant because they contain everyday stories that, if you look closely, have profound spiritual parallels and speak just as insightfully to our culture today as they did to his listeners over 2,000 years ago. So what are the spiritual parallels in Jesus' story? Well, if the host of the party is to be understood as God, and the party is a picture of the kingdom of God, or heaven, and the guests are to be understood as his people, then the message of the first half of this parable is that people reject God's invitation for two reasons. First, some reject God because they have a warped view of heaven, which means they vastly underestimate the joy, peace, and purpose that will characterize life in the kingdom of God. 
there are many who say, God can't be that good, can he? He seems like he's always trying to stop the fun and make, and make us follow these endless rules. I'm not sure if I'd want to be around a God like that for eternity. Now, I've actually heard a few people say this. Both my brothers, in fact, have said this to me in the past. And the tragic thing is that this is simply not the truth about God and his kingdom. God's posture is to bless us. He wants us to have life in all its fullness. Eternity with God will be anything but humdrum and dull. We will never grow tired of life in his presence because we'll never, ever stop plumbing the depths of his character, his grace, his wisdom, his love in, in renewed creation, which among other things will involve a perfected city where people from all over the globe will bring the very best parts of their culture to be enjoyed by the worshiping community. You can read about that in Isaiah 60. Think about the best parts of New York, the best parts of London, the best parts of Paris, the best parts of Tokyo. Put them all into one city without all the marks of sin. Isn't that a place that you'd want to be? It'll be the most culturally diverse and creatively inspiring city that anyone has ever seen. In light of how heaven is described in the Bible, if a person is going to reject God's invitation, then they must suppress the truth, to use Paul's words in Romans 1.18. In the same way, the three men that have been invited to the banquet yet chose not to go, it's possible to know the truth about God, but then suppress it, push it down, push it aside so that you don't have to think about it. The second spiritual parallel in Jesus' story here is that it's possible to become so wrapped up in earthly things that you become too busy or too distracted to think about God's invitation. Be it work, possessions, relationships, or something else, humans can invest their time, money, and energy in such a way that they never pause to think about God and the profound invitation that he has offered them. C.S. Lewis so brilliantly sums this up in his famous quote from his book, The Weight of Glory. And it should come up on the screen here. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the off offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The men in Jesus' parable are seeking after other things first. And friends, the same thing can just as easily happen to us. Our work, our possessions, and our relationships, and other things can so dominate our lives that we lose sight of the gracious invitation that God is extending to us. This distraction can happen unconsciously as our calendars have an uncanny ability to continue to fill up and fill up 
and fill up until we wake up one day and suddenly feel so overwhelmed with the obligations of life that we simply forget to seek first the kingdom of God. But we can also distract ourselves consciously because for whatever reason, we have trouble accepting God's invitation. And so we gladly allow our work and our possessions and our relationships and other things to distract us from God. See, the men in Jesus' story, they would have had to give something up to attend the banquet. As I said earlier, the party would have lasted for many days. So these men would have had to give up their time and carve out, you know, carve out time in their busy lives to attend. They would also have had to make a journey to get there, which in those days meant either a hot and tiring walk through the dusty streets or an uncomfortable ride on an animal. Can you imagine riding a camel in a three-piece suit in 100-degree heat? Remember the host in Jesus' parable, he, he'd done everything to put on the banquet. He wasn't asking anyone to bring anything. But they still had to give up time, energy, and money to actually make the journey and attend the banquet. It still cost them something. Similarly, God has done everything necessary for us to be forgiven from sin so that we might enter his kingdom. He doesn't ask us to contribute to our salvation in any way. But shortly before our passage today, in Luke 13, 24, Jesus says that in order to be saved, we must make every effort to enter into God's kingdom. For some, this idea of sacrifice and journeying in order to enter into God's kingdom causes them to turn away from the invitation God is extending for some, it may be because they are too comfortable financially to follow Jesus' commands to give generously to the poor. For others, their career is the number one priority, and so they haven't got time in their, in their calendar to follow God's teaching on meaningfully belonging to a local church. For others, they're in a relationship with someone who isn't a Christian, and they fear losing them if they choose Jesus. Others might say, I don't need God. I'm fine on my own. I'm a good person. Others might say, if only you knew. If only you knew what I'd done. If only you knew the person I am on the inside, God wouldn't want to forgive me. And so they disqualify themselves. In light of all this, let's ask ourselves where we might be most at risk of seeking other things before the kingdom of God. Let's avoid the mistakes that the men in Jesus' parable made. Let's not allow our hearts to be too wrapped up in earthly matters that we refuse the invitation that God is extending to us and miss his banquet. So we've considered the spiritual lessons in the first half of Jesus' parable. Let's read on and see what else Jesus is trying to teach us. Verse 21 says this. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then, in anger, the master of the house told his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. 
So in the next section of Jesus' parable, we see the impact that the guest's excuses have on the host. The Greek word that we translate to anger here communicates the fury of God at sin. And it only shows up one other place in the New Testament, in Matthew 18, verse 34, in the parable of the unforgiving servant. Sometimes the idea of God being angry can offend us. But what other reaction could we expect from the very ones to whom God offers a gracious hand of forgiveness and newness of life and then turn their backs and walk away? Jumping back into the passage, the host then orders the servants to go out into the streets and invite the poor, the maimed, the blind and the lame into the banquet. Now, what is Jesus communicating here? Well, on first glance, the host in Jesus' parable, he seems to be contradicting the very teaching that Jesus laid down in the parable he told to the Pharisee, whose dinner party Jesus is currently a guest at. In chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, Jesus says, When you give a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you will be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame or blind, and you will be blessed, because, you, because they cannot repay you, and you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So if the host represents God in Jesus' story, why does he invite the rich first and then the poor and the disabled as an afterthought when those who invited give their excuses? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus' goal in this parable is to highlight spiritual truths using relatable everyday examples. Most scholars are in strong agreement that Jesus is using this story to make a point about the order in which God has invited people into his kingdom. Namely, Jewish people first, and then Gentiles, that's everyone else, second. Which is essentially the overarching narrative of the whole Bible. Right at the beginning of our Bibles, Genesis 12, we see God choose a man named Abraham, who would later be called Abraham, to father an entire nation. And through this nation, God promises to bless all peoples on earth. Throughout, throughout the ensuing centuries, which are written down for us in the Old Testament, we see that despite some notable high points, the overall trajectory of the nation of Israel was downhill as they fell further and further from their call to be a light to the nations until God allowed them to be conquered by the Assyrians first and then the Babylonians and taken into exile. After the exile, God raised up prophets who spoke of the Messiah, through whom God would bring about salvation and restoration. Fast forward 600 years after the exile, and the Jewish people were still groaning and yearning for God to save them. Then, at around the age of 30, Jesus began his ministry. And we see in John chapter 4, that he takes the name of the Messiah, God's chosen one, the one sent from God to bring about the salvation promise in the Old Testament. However, Jesus' teaching about God's kingdom and the way into it was so at odds with the ideas and thinking of first century Judaism that they responded in disgust 
instead of joy. See, not once in Jesus' teaching does he talk about a physical place that God was going to give to the people. We actually read it on Good Friday. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. His description of the place that God was preparing for his people was much more grand than anything built with wood and stone. Jesus says, my father is preparing you a place in his house and the door into God's house is through faith in me alone. The religious leaders could not stomach this. They thought that if the Messiah was coming now, he would overthrow the Romans and give them back their land, their sovereignty, and their security. The religious leaders were like the children in C.S. Lewis, Lewis's quote. They were content playing with mud pies because they couldn't imagine that God was doing far greater things in Jesus. God was blessing the whole earth through his son, and they were too narrow in their focus to see it. And so the Jewish leaders, spiritually speaking, were just like the three men who made their excuses and reject the invitation to the banquet. They were too wrapped up in their earthly notions of what God's kingdom should look like, and too enamored with the power, privilege, and position that the Jewish religion offered them, that they were unable to give it up for a seat at the banquet. And so they made their excuses for why they rejected Jesus' teaching. They pointed to him healing on the Sabbath, to him associating with sinners, to his ragtag friends who were rowdy and rough around the edges and probably like me were missing a teeth or two. They made their excuses, but deep down they hated Jesus. And no matter what Jesus did or said, they wouldn't change their minds. So if the men who made the excuses represent the Jewish elite who rejected Jesus, then who do the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame represent? Well, to answer that question, we need to ask why Jesus picks this group to make his deeper spiritual point. You see, in Jesus' day, the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame, materially speaking, had the least. Living with poverty and disabilities in our society now is undoubtedly tough, but it would have been much tougher to be poor and disabled in Jesus' day, with no social welfare, no modern medicine and technology, no means of earning money in an economy that relied almost exclusively on manual labor. The poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame had next to nothing, materially speaking. They were the most vulnerable, the most needy, and they were at the very bottom of the social strata. This is why Jesus says that the poor and the disabled wouldn't be able to pay you back if you invited them to dinner. Now, let me say at this point that Jesus' parables, they're rich and they're multi-layered, and they often offer multiple rich applications. Why do I say this? Well, one interpretation of Jesus' explicit exclusion of the poor and disabled here is that God has a special affection for people who are so vulnerable. Throughout Jesus' life, he said some very sharp and often shocking things to the rich and powerful. But with the vulnerable, Jesus is tender and gentle. Matthew 12, 20 says, he will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. The ones whose society had shunned were the very ones who Jesus sought out. 
If we are going to imitate our Lord, then we should be carving out time in our schedules to seek out those whose lives have been ravaged by poverty and ill health. As a church, let's be considering ways that we can be more inclusive to those who have been excluded in our communities. In the past few weeks, we've been exploring how we can expand our justice and mercy ministries here at the church so that we can offer long-term wraparound care to the most vulnerable in our neighborhoods. So keep your eyes peeled for more information on how you and how your missional communities can get involved with that. Let's consider the spiritual teaching point that Jesus is making by including the poor and the disabled in this parable. Scholars are mostly in agreement that Jesus is using the poor and the disabled to represent the group known as the Gentiles, which simply refers to anyone who isn't Jewish. What do Gentiles and the poor and disabled have in common? Well, in Luke 14, 14, Jesus says the poor and disabled would be unable to pay you back if you invited them to dinner. Now, this is key to understanding what Jesus is saying about the Gentiles. In the parable of the great banquet, the people who find themselves at the table are the ones who had nothing to offer the host. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, the kingdom of heaven will be filled with those who have absolutely nothing to offer God. Now again, this would come as a shock to the religious people in the room with Jesus. They thought that because of their good works, they had plenty that they could offer to God in order to be blessed by him. The religious people of Jesus' day were entitled. They thought that they would be among the first people to sit down in the kingdom of God. But according to Jesus, the first to take their seats will be the, with those with the least. This truth has caused some to talk of God's kingdom as an upside-down kingdom. And in Jesus' own words, in Luke chapter 13, verse 30, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Let me read you these, verse, these, these words from Isaiah. This, isn't in my, this wasn't actually in my script, but me and my wife were talking about this last night, and I just thought, I've got to read this out. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. And you without silver, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen, so that you will live. <laughs> Come, everyone who is thirsty, and you without silver, come buy. How do you buy stuff without silver? How do you buy food when you've got nothing? This is a, this is a profound truth. And the pastor of my old, old church was preaching on this. And he said this phrase that's just stuck with me. And he said, our lack is our currency. In, um, back in the Church of England, um, which is like the Anglican church in the UK, 
My dad is a vicar, uh, has been for his entire career. And uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the Church of England churches have these like, massive like, brass uh, collection bowls. They're huge. And they literally pass it around as part of the ser- service. So it just goes around from person to person and people you know, pull out a few pennies and chuck them in. And I don't know whether this is a true story or not, but I've heard this multiple times from people preaching in the UK. But apparently the story goes that one day the bowl was getting passed around. People are clinking in their, you know, their change and stuff. And then it comes to this young boy. And he like checks his pockets. And he's like, oh, I haven't got any money. Oh, hmm, no money. And then he goes, picks up the bowl, puts it in the aisle, and then he just steps into the bowl. Now, it's probably not a true story, but isn't that an incredible picture? Listen, if you're going to come into the kingdom of God, you have to realize that your lack is your currency, that you have absolutely nothing with which to pay back God. That pretty much is, it is the reason that, that, yeah, like, if you come to God and you say, look at this and that and all these things that I've done, that's not how it works. You come to God and say, look, even my best, my, the best things I've ever done, even those things are like filthy rags, I need you to bless me and forgive me. Our lack is our currency. You see, works... An entitlement has no joy. If you think that you've done enough to make it into heaven, then when you get there, or if, if you were to get there, you wouldn't have joy because you'd be like, yeah, I did all the right things. I went to church, I gave to charity, read my Bible. I did all the right things. I tried to save the planet. You know, I should be here. There's no joy in that. But you see, grace... That's what really fuels joy, right? When we say to God, just like that little boy, I've got nothing before you, and you step forward into the plate and you say, here I am. That is the only thing God can work with in salvation terms. And friends, there is great joy to be found here on Easter Sunday. Through the cross and resurrection, we've been invited to an eternal feast And though though we have nothing with which to repay God, we now find ourselves richly blessed because of the generosity of God. This takes us to the last act in Jesus' parable, which sees the servant report back to the host that even though the poor and disabled have come in, there is still room. See, Jesus, he's highlighting the size of God's heart for the lost here. God isn't satisfied that there are empty seats at his banquet. He will continue to relentlessly pursue the lost. The host in Jesus' parable orders the servants to go out to the very edges of the city, to the rural lanes and byways. The spiritual lesson for us here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is to go to the farthest flung corners of the globe, That's the heart of God. God invites you and I to partner with him 
in this global mission. God wants a diverse banqueting table. He wants every tribe and tongue and nation to come in and rub shoulders with him at the table. Let's be regularly praying for our global mission partners today. Rob Kopp in Japan and those that were supporting in Indonesia. And we've also sent many, many others out so that pretty much at this point, we've sent someone to every continent on the earth. Praise God, and let's not, let's not stop with that. Let's continue. On a more local level, let's take every opportunity we can to offer our ho- open up our homes and tables to those from different backgrounds and cultures than our own. For as we do... We image our Heavenly Father who isn't content with empty seats at his banquet and whose heart is that the good news of Easter be preached to the ends of the earth. In conclusion, Jesus' parable builds on his fellow guest statement made in verse 15. Blessed is the one who will eat bread at the kingdom of God. Jesus says, you're right. It is an enormous blessing to be invited into the kingdom of God. But let me tell you about the people who will be there. See, the kingdom of God will be filled with those who seek first the kingdom and who don't get wrapped up in worldly things. It won't be the spiritually rich who enter, but those who acknowledge their spiritual poverty before God and count anything they thought they had as done, just like the Apostle Paul did in Philippians 3. And the kingdom of God won't be narrow, Hallelujah. It won't just be Israelites, although there will be a lot of Israelites there in the kingdom. But it will also be filled with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, clinking glasses together around the the banqueting table in heaven. If you're a Christian here today, then I'm excited to sing with you songs of victory and joy now. Let's raise our voices together on this Easter day And shout for joy that though we were once far from God, God sent Jesus to go find us and invite us to his banquet. And if you're not a Christian today, I would encourage you to examine what you think you know about the kingdom of God. Make sure you aren't like the men who make excuses in Jesus' parable because they had the wrong idea of what the banquet was like. Also, Beware that you don't allow work, possessions, relationships, or anything else to keep you so distracted that you never have time to think about God. See, what you do with God's invitation is the single most important decision you will face in life. So I urge you to give that question the thought that it deserves. Why don't you pray with me? Lord God, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you so much for the good news that even though we have nothing to repay you with, you came and richly blessed us in your son. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins, taking away that barrier that stops us from coming to you. And thank you for raising to new life, opening up the gates to eternal life, showing us what it looks like to be resurrected.
Thank you for this glorious parable, God. I thank you so much for all it teaches us. I really do pray that we respond to it um, appropriately today, Lord. And would your Holy Spirit be highlighting areas um, where you want to teach us something, Lord. You want to show us something. You want to reveal something to us. So give us ears to hear, Lord, what you're saying to us through this passage. And would you just help us to, to really raise the roof now as we worship together and sing. Pray that it would be heard down the street, Lord, because we love you and we're so excited by the gospel. Amen.